happy to be here, happy to be with you all. Uh, so as Colleen just mentioned, I did recently finish my MDiv at APU, and much to my surprise, I've actually really missed school. And so some of my friends and mentors and family are a little bit taken aback. They're like, weren't you just complaining about being in school, and now you're complaining about missing school? Um, and so I was thinking about it. Why do I miss school so much? And I think one of the biggest reasons is because of the amazing professors that I had. Professors who have given their lives to teach and given their lives to study. I think most people would agree, even if school was never your thing, that there's something amazing and transformative about having a good teacher. Thinking back through my life as a student, I remember my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Burns. She was the first person who told me I had leadership potential and the first person to give me opportunities to lead. And then I think of high school and I think of Dr. Harnett. He was my history teacher and he helped open my eyes to the complexities of American history and helped me to start thinking critically. Can you think of a good teacher that you have had, whether from your time in school or from your work or in your extended family? What was their name? Do you remember why you liked them? What made them have an impact on you? Do you still think about what they taught you even today? For me, a professor who clearly and distinctly comes to mind is Dr. Lee. He was my theology professor at Westmont. And him and his wife would do something very unique. Every Sunday night, literally every Sunday night, they would invite any student who wanted to come into their home for a meal and for conversation. And so basically, yeah, a distinct picture in my head of Dr. Lee after dinner sitting on his chair every Sunday and he's stroking his dog. And then there's about five or four students all huddled around him. And I'm one of those students. And oftentimes we'd come with prepared questions like, Dr. Lee, what do you think about predestination? Or Dr. Lee, how do you communicate the gospel to people who have never heard the name of Jesus before? Or, Dr. Lee, what's with the dating culture at Westmont? Can you help us out? Uh, and I thought Dr. Lee was a phenomenal teacher because he wasn't content to just give us easy or straightforward answers. He made us work for them. When we would ask questions, he would ask us questions back. He would share stories. He would talk about other theologians who had differing opinions. So I see Dr. Lee as a great teacher. And I also know that Jesus was a great teacher and is a great teacher. He was creative, compelling, and spoke with authority. He too was a teacher not content to give easy or straightforward answers. Jesus' teaching methods often left people angered, confused, and sometimes filled with joy. A defining characteristic of Jesus' communication was that he used indirect communication rather than direct communication. So some of us might be a little bit frustrated here. Like, Jesus, tell us what you mean. Talk to us straight. 
But Jesus wasn't that type of teacher. He was a little bit more like Dr. Lee. He talked in parables. And parables are stories or similes or riddles or wisdom sayings that use the content of first of basically the first Palestinian first century Palestinian culture. So things that fishermen and slaves and shepherds would be familiar with. So he used those things and then he used them to describe the kingdom of God and used them to describe God. And Jesus loved to do this, and he did this all the time. Biblical scholar Bauckham writes about indirect communication and Jesus' use of it. And this is what he says. A common feature of indirect communication is that it creates a pause for thought between what is said and the hearer's realization of what is meant. For example, the pause could be momentary, like the second it takes between the telling of a joke and someone understanding the punchline. Or the pause may give time for deeper reflection on a message. Or the pause, as Bauckham writes, might be indefinitely long, as when the hearer goes away, still puzzling over the point of a story or pondering the significance of a weighty saying. These pauses, which parables produce, give time for people to have perspective shifts, their cherished beliefs challenged, and to reconsider what they thought they knew. As Dr. Lee was apt to challenge our assumptions about God through an indirect teaching style, Jesus was apt to challenge Jewish assumptions about the kingdom of God and the long-awaited Messiah, through his telling of parables. So today we're opening up the Gospel of Matthew. And what's interesting about the Gospel of Matthew is that it's basically split up into five different discourses. And so the chapter that we're looking at today, Matthew 13, is actually in the third discourse. So some might say it's the centerpiece, the center of Matthew's Gospel. And so we're going to look at four parables and please turn with me to Matthew 13:31. And so as we just talked about parables as indirect communication and indirect communication being valuable and that it creates a pause, after I read the parable, we're going to pause. Take a deep breath in and think about what Jesus just said. And this will happen after I read each parable. But we're going to go through them one at a time. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The mustard seed in ancient Judaism was normally referred to as the smallest of seeds. So this parable 
produces an image of a stark contrast between the beginnings of the mustard plant as the smallest of seeds and then the full maturation of the mustard plant into a tree large enough to house birds. Thus, like the mustard seed, the kingdom of God has almost an imperceptible and unnoticeable beginning. Yet its end will produce a large and wonderful result. I'm going to read the parable one more time. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, the next parable is actually side by side, and it's the parable with the yeast and the woman. And it's fairly similar to the mustard seed parable in what it's trying to communicate. So if we turn to verse 33, I'll go ahead and read the parable. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. So I had to look up bread recipes online because I've never made bread. My roommate makes really good bread. <laughs> but, um, so this one blogger said, after you stir in a tablespoon of yeast, let the yeast mixture sit for five or six minutes, two to three for it to become thoroughly dissolved, and two or three more for it to begin to grow and show signs of life. Tiny bubbles should begin to appear on the surface of the dough, and then some varieties of yeast will cause the whole mixture to expand rather dramatically. Putting in a spoonful of yeast is a seemingly unimpressive act, and yet the effect it has on the dough is remarkable. The yeast, which started as a small spoonful, quietly expands and permeates the whole dough and causes it to rise. Again, we see the kingdom of God is like yeast. It has an unimpressive start that is easy to miss, but before you know it, it has changed everything it touches and ends up contributing to a steaming loaf of bread. Both these parables point to the hiddenness of the kingdom of God and its meager beginnings when compared to its full revelation. At the same time, the parables confirm that the long-awaited and long-anticipated kingdom of God has arrived. It has been inaugurated by Jesus himself. So when Jesus is talking about the beginnings of the kingdom, he is saying that I have brought the kingdom. The beginning of the kingdom is in me. Now, it must have been pretty difficult for some of Jesus' followers to accept this parable. For they had expectations. We have expectations. 
they were expecting that the arrival of God's kingdom would mean the, over, the overthrow of the occupier Rome. They would have want, wanted their Messiah, Jesus, to start a military rebellion to put Israel in power. So the idea that the kingdom would start small would be unnoticeable probably was a little bit uncomfortable for them, maybe very uncomfortable for them. Because instead, the, the long-anticipated king that they were waiting for was born in Bethlehem in a stable in a manger. This king chose to exercise his power through healing the sick and the lame, teaching through parables and symbolic actions, preaching good news to the poor, performing exorcisms, and then dying a brutal death on the cross. It was from these humble beginnings that the kingdom of God was begun and continues to this day. Like Jesus' followers, we too await the kingdom's full revelation on earth. And like Jesus' followers, we seek to make what is hidden known to the world. The next parable, actually it's going to be two parables, are in verses 44 and 45. And so I'll read them separately. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. In both parables, when the treasure or pearl is found, there is an immediate and unquestioning reaction of giving up everything in exchange for what they have found. The selling of everything they own is not a sacrifice. It is done with joy, for they have recognized the incomparable worth of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is truly priceless for those who find it. Now, Jesus was the one who brought the kingdom. And Jesus knows the immeasurable worth of his kingdom. He knows that his kingdom offers radical forgiveness to sinners, hope for the poor, healing to the blind and the lame, freedom for those in addiction, belonging to the outsider, purpose to the lost, and hope in the fullness of God's glorious kingdom in heaven coming entirely down to earth at the end of the age. The kingdom of God is priceless because it means that we are in the presence of the king, a king who will never leave us nor forsake us, who has promised to shower his love upon us, has promised to dwell with us, and who has even invited us to know him like a friend and to know his father like our Father. 
In a world where the nation state, the mall, even technology are all vying for our allegiance to their kingdoms, it is such good news that Jesus is teaching us that his kingdom is more precious than we could ever imagine. A kingdom which turns the power structures of this world on their head, which promises that those who mourn will be comforted, that the blind will see, that the lame will walk, that the hated criminals and sinners will become friends of God, and that everyone, no matter how much money they make or what their social status might be, is required to enter the kingdom of God the same way, to humble themselves like little children. So I don't know where you're at. If you have already found the pearl of great price and sold everything you have to obtain it. I know that when I heard about God's kingdom, I couldn't imagine wanting to live in any other kingdom. He has invited me into a life of love and grace and mercy, and has called me to extend that to others. He has invited me to interact with people who are different than me, to learn from those that society deems as unimportant. And for you who haven't discovered the treasure yet, seek, seek the treasure. Go and look for it. It might be hard to see at first, but once you see it and once you find it, you want to sell everything you have in order to have it. Now I'm going to read the final parable included in the lectionary text this morning. Please go to verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Evil still exists in the kingdom of heaven today and in Jesus' day. The time of Jesus' ministry, which continues until this day, is not the time for judgment. But what this parable is concerned about is the judgment that is to come at the end of the age, when the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous. The kingdom of God, as we have talked about, is the pearl of great price, which Jesus himself enacted with his life and his teachings, and which he invites everyone, everyone to enter. Thus, the urgent question we have to ask ourselves is, will we align ourselves with the true king who will bring righteousness, justice, and truth to the world? Or will we align ourselves with forces that oppose the advancement of God's kingdom? Forces which promote evil, selfishness, oppression of the most vulnerable, violence, and abuse. I want to be honest, when I read this parable and when I read this parable, it makes me uncomfortable. It made me even more uncomfortable to preach about it. But 
but it's because judgment is a hard pill for our culture and world to swallow. I was reading through several commentaries, and one commentator stood out to me, so I'm going to read you some of what he said. This is what he said. How can the modern church find the balance to do justice to the grace and magnanimous love of God and at the same time treat fairly the warnings of judgment, metaphorical as indeed they are? Whatever else we do, we fail if we do not provide the warning that how we live really matters to God and that we will be held accountable. The sorting and accountability are part of the kingdom and its future. I refer, of course, to God's judgment at the end of the age, not to humans condemning one another. So the point of these parables is to make us stop, to make us pause, to think. They should be causing a lot of wrestling. They should require our reflection and contemplation. They are meant to catch us off guard, to make us pause and try to understand, to cause us to reevaluate our beliefs, and then to move us to action. Like I said at the beginning of our time this morning, there really is nothing like a good teacher. What's so amazing is that Jesus, who is the Savior and King of the world, who is redeeming the world to himself, also longs to be our teacher, to teach us right now, to teach us this morning, to teach us about the life we can have when we submit to God's rule and reign. Even today, Jesus longs to teach us about the kingdom of heaven and to teach us how to live in the kingdom of heaven. So what strikes me about God's rule and reign coming to earth with the arrival of Jesus on the scene is that Jesus does not want us who choose to be in his kingdom to be spectators. He wants us to be participants. He wants us to do the very things that he did. He wants us to cast out demons, to heal those who are sick, to bring those on the outside into the inside. I think that is an amazing calling. Jesus even tells his disciples in John as he is about to leave him, Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is an amazing calling, to be asked to do the works that Jesus did in his kingdom. And Jesus said we might even do greater works than he did. But the question I have for us is, who will teach us to do those things? Who will teach us how to heal people in Jesus' name? Who will teach us how to offer forgiveness, how to extend mercy? And again, the good news is that Jesus is still our teacher. But Jesus recognized that having him not physically present with us might pose a couple of questions. So this is what he told his disciples. I have said these things to you 
while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Through the Holy Spirit, we can be taught anew by Jesus. Jesus, our good teacher, would you teach us how to heal the sick, lame, and hurting among us? We know you have entrusted us to be students of your healing. Jesus, our good teacher, would you teach us how to draw people from the outside, the poor, the downtrodden, the despised, to the inside, so their lives are honored and made worthy. We know you have entrusted us to be students of radical hospitality. Jesus, our good teacher, when we are tempted to callous our hearts to those suffering, would you instead teach us to look on our neighbors with compassion? We know you have entrusted us to be students of your compassion. Jesus, our good teacher, When the evil one gains hold of people, would you teach us how to cast out demons in your name? We know you have entrusted us to be in battle against the evil one. Jesus, our good teacher, when the world tells us that we should only be associating with those who think like us and look like us, would you teach us to open our doors to sit at the same table, eat the same food with criminals and sinners. We know you have entrusted us to share our lives with those who are rejected and despised. Jesus, our good teacher, when we are prone to lose faith and to lose hope and to want to trust in our own plans for our lives, would you teach us to say like you did, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. What I've found through all of this and what I'm so amazed by is how patient of a teacher Jesus is. He's so patient. It's been 2,000 years, and he's still teaching us about his kingdom and about how to live in his kingdom. And he's gentle with us, and he'll take us by the hand and show us these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, what does Jesus need to teach us about? What does he need to teach you about? What does he need to teach me about? Maybe how to extend grace to those in our family who it's really hard to get along with. Or maybe to extend mercy to a person without a home on the streets, or maybe it's to get our, to know our neighbors better. I don't know what he's trying to teach you, but are we willing to wrestle with his words and parables throughout the Gospels? Are we willing to ponder them? Because that's what they require. Can we invite the Holy Spirit into the parts of us that are most unteachable? that are most resistant to his influence? Can we ask the Spirit to lower our defenses, to make us pause, to help us reimagine our reality with God as King?
So I want to end our time by reading what Jesus told to his disciples, actually in the same chapter that we've been reading from, Matthew 13, but a couple of verses before. And so I find these words both haunting and hopeful. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, you will indeed listen, but never understand. And you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And so he was talking about the crowds there, but now he's speaking directly to the disciples. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people, so many, long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so these parables, these words that we get to hear today, they're such a gift, because Jesus is right. Our forefathers, the people of faith who have gone before us, they wanted to hear these things, but they never did. But today we have heard these things, and tomorrow we can teach these things, um, and I truly think that is an amazing gift. My prayer for us is that we too would have blessed eyes that see and ears that hear, and that we would recognize the immeasurable gift it is to have Jesus as our teacher. Amen.